0: Good, good morning. Good morning. You guys are so friendly. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Grab a seat. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm the teaching pastor, and I'm excited and encouraged to get to Look at the Bible with you today and see what Jesus has to say to us. So if you have a Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and turn to Revelation 3. Um, And today we finish a series that we've been in for about seven to eight weeks called The Seven. And it's based on the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in what we would now call modern day Turkey. It's found in the the front part of the book of Revelation. Um, And it's been a fun study for us. If you've missed some of that, you can always find that online. Um, but I feel like it's been helpful for me as a pastor to look at what Jesus is saying to churches. And he says in these passages at the, at the end of every letter, he who has an ear to hear, let him, let him hear. And that, that includes us today. So I think today is going to be equally helpful. And while you're turning there, just to kind of let you know where the bus is going, um, since we're ending this sermon today, next week we have a special sermon, or just basically a special week, not a series, but we have a special week called our Calm Group Connect, okay, that's basically where we're going to talk about our comm groups in a little bit more detail, but not just our comm groups because a lot of you are in one, but the biblical basis behind why we do it. We'd also like to talk about, uh, maybe just to encourage some of you that are already in it. Some of you are in it already and you're like, I enjoy it, but I'm trying to figure out what we do, how does this fit, am I, am I kind of missing something? It gives us an opportunity to tell you what the Bible says to us and why we have formed this thing called a community group on mission or a comm group community on mission. Um, So it's going to be a very special week. And then after that, we start a brand new series. We're going to start off the fall with a dual campaign. It's the first time our church has done something here as a campaign, and we're doing it on the campus at the same time. The name of the series is Stuff Jesus Never Said. So we're going to spend a few months on things that Jesus did not say, but we often hear in culture, but we are going to look at red letter text, mostly out of the book of Matthew, where we see things that Jesus did say and put it right next to things that Jesus never did say that we hear him allegedly saying all the time through our culture. So that should be an interesting series. But uh, today we're in Revelation three, all of that to say that, right? Have any of you ever lived in a boom town before or even know what one is? Raise your hand if you've ever lived in a I know Tyler has. Some of you have. A boomtown is a town where something economically has broken loose. A lot of times it's a natural resource. And there is so much money to be made that people are moving in from all over the world to get a piece of the action. In fact, so many people move into a boomtown that it changes the way the city looks forever. Think of San Francisco. It's a boomtown right? Back when our nation was young, they found gold. There's gold in them, there hills. People come in from all over the world, cities all over, and now you have San Francisco. Think of the uh, dot-com boom, right? Not really a natural resource, but in the 90s, in the dot-com boom, you had people coming in from all over the world to Silicon Valley, right? I grew up in a boom town, um, traditionally, it's been a boom town. Right now, it happens to be one of the biggest boom towns probably in the world, and that's West Texas. I grew up in a place called the Permian Basin, Midland Odessa, Texas. Um, and what, the reason it's booming now is because there's been an innovation in oil technology that you don't really have to speculate anymore. You can pretty much stick a hole in the ground, and with this new innovative technology, you can get oil right out of the ground. So all you need is some money, and you can make a lot of money. That's how it works. And a lot of people have money, so a lot of people are moving in to make more money. Engineers are getting into it. Police officers are getting into it. Anyone who has a little bit of money is throwing it all into oil, and they're making so much money back, it's amazing. When I graduated high school, there was ninety thousand people in that city. Today, there's about one hundred and seventy thousand. It's supposed to double again in within twelve years. Right? So the average income per household right now in Midland, Texas, is between ninety-six and ninety-eight thousand dollars per household. It's a lot. Unemployment is below 2%. That's less than one-fourth of the national average. Everybody's got a job. Everybody does not have a house, however. Housing is hard to find. Why? Because everybody's moving in, right? They're building it as fast as they can. The only thing keeping people from swarming that city, is that there's just nowhere for them to live. People are living in tents. People are living in tents that are making over $70,000 a year right now, right? People are living in storage units. Because they need a place to charge their cell phone. People are living in their vehicles. Uh, restaurants are struggling. Because why would you ever work at a restaurant for tips if you could go and work for Exxon or some local operation and make 4, 5, 20 times what you would normally make at a restaurant? Banks are struggling because people are paying off their loans with cash. Right? It's interesting... They've seen booms come and go before. In the 80s, there was an oil boom, and Midland kind of showed up on the map. At that time, there were more boats per capita in Midland, Texas, than any other city in the country. The trick is, is there's no water there, no lakes, no rivers. But everybody had a lake home somewhere else, USA. And they strapped it to their pretty truck with the paper plates on it, and every weekend, they took that truck right on out to the lake. More Rolls Royces. There. We have a Rolls Royce dealership in Midland, Texas a boom town. The city we're looking at today, Laodicea, is like that. It was a boom town. Right? That makes it very different from other towns. Now, they did not export uh, websites or gold or oil, but they had their own things that nobody else could really get their hands on, and therefore people were coming in, and you had a very strong, financially well-off people. They had this kind of wool, like a black wool. It was really hard to find. And it was what was primarily used to make what they would have considered designer clothes. So they had this great textile industry that was hard to find anywhere else. Banking was also something that was unique to the city. The whole known world would focus their banking on Laodicea. So you had gold coming in and out all the time. Oddly enough, eye care was a big export. Ophthalmology was at its peak in this one city so if you had eye problems you could make your way to Laodicea they had creams and salves for your eyes and it would actually help you see I mean it's historically known that this was one of the places that you'd go for medical care so it's just a wealthy place everybody had a jet ski everyone was a season ticket holder no one had a vehicle that had over a hundred thousand miles on it everyone had their retirement set up it's just the different people Strong people too, very independent. As we've looked at the last few weeks, earthquakes would come and just rock these little towns. And whenever it did that, the walls would fall in, big buildings would fall, and it would take 10, 20, even up to 100 years to rebuild some of these. Of course, it's not just time that they needed, they needed money to rebuild these cities too. So other cities would pitch in money, the empire would develop and pour a lot of money and invest a lot of money into these towns that had been rocked by tragedy, except for Laodicea. They were so wealthy and so independent, they said, nah, we got this. We got this. Thanks, but no thanks. We can take care of it from here. In fact, we're already halfway rebuilt. You can move on. It's the kind of people they were. And I know already it's probably easy for you to think in your mind, I don't have much in common with this city. Knoxville is very far from this town. Doesn't it sound like it? Knoxville doesn't have much to do with a city like Laodicea, except it really does. Make no mistake, just hit pause in your heart for a little bit because we have a lot to learn. Laodicean blood runs in all of us, as we're going to find out. And the things that they struggle with, we all struggle with. Everyone in this room struggles with. So I think this passage is going to help us see Christ more clearly, the gospel more clearly, and ourselves more clearly. Because, you know, for better or for worse, churches tend to look like the culture that they are in, for better and for worse. It's not always bad, right? Right? We look like the culture because we're all plucked out of the culture and we're all gathered to worship a king, but we still have a smell and a scent of us from the outside world, everything beyond our boundaries. Like I said, that's not always bad. And as a church, we don't declare war on all parts of our culture in here in Knoxville. There's some really good stuff. I've heard pastors say um, in the past, uh, and, and I don't know where to originally attribute this. It's not original to me. Um, But I've heard that there are three ways to interact with culture. It's been very helpful. One is to receive it because there's nothing wrong with it. You can totally take it as it is. It can glorify God very easily. Um, Another is that you can take a piece of culture, but it needs to be redeemed. It's kind kind of right on the line, or it may be amoral, not so much immoral, but it, it can be redeemed to glorify God. And then there's some parts of culture that we need to reject because it has nothing to do with God's glory and is loaded with sin. So today we have a church that turned in on itself and it wasn't redeeming any of culture. It was just eating it all. In fact, it was so camouflaged that you could not tell where this church stopped and where the culture outside of the boundaries started. Jesus had nothing good to say about this church. Nothing good. You've heard in the letters that we've been reading, he'll have an encouragement, a challenge, a promise here. Nothing good. So let's just jump into the text Revelation 3, we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to finish the series off with this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I hate to pause it there, but I need to pause it there because there's some areas to get tripped up here, okay? And you probably have already spotted them. One is that's odd phraseology, the words of the amen. What does that mean? laodicea the word means rule of the people it was a democratic people always voting on things always seconding somebody else's motion always passing legislation right they they were people that ruled themselves they were people that had all the power always saying amen to each other always validating each other and i think what jesus is saying here is you can vote all you want but you don't rule anything i rule everything i am i am the amen vote but you're not in control I'm in control. I think he needs to remind these people of this, and I think that's what he did. He also calls himself the beginning of God's creation, which has tripped a lot of people up because what it looks like, it looks like it says that God created Jesus. Now, that presents a problem, right? Because we we don't believe that. We believe that Jesus was not created by God but is co-eternal with God with no beginning and no end. But does that disagree with this statement? It actually doesn't. Underneath the language, in the way that this is written in the Greek, and and understand the Greeks and the Hebrews and even in Aramaic, they they use words a little differently than we use words. What this genuinely means is that he's the origin and the source. So he is the source of God's creation, the origin, the beginning of God's creation, not only of the creation that we see and all walk around and go hiking through, but the new creation, right? the new family, the new kingdom, the new order. A new family. That's why you see in Revelation 1 and Colossians 1, you've probably tripped on it before, that phrase that says he is the firstborn from the dead or the firstborn of the dead. That's what he's talking about. He is the first to have new life come up, to be raised from the dead, never to die. He is the origin and the source of all of creation and all of the new creation. That's probably the better way to read this, most likely. Verse 15 though, this is what this passage is known for. I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would you were either cold or hot? So because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that's graphic language. We kind of miss how graphic that is today because we're always spitting, right? My wife doesn't like it when I watch baseball in the house because the pitchers are always spitting, constantly spitting right? So she, she doesn't like it when it, she'd rather me go somewhere else and watch a ball game. And the fact is, is I grew up spitting things. Guys, that doesn't gross us out very much, does it? We read this. We spit. We do it when we play athletics. We do it just because we're dudes. We're always spitting something. Even if we have nothing to spit out of our mouth, we're spitting spit out of our mouth. We're always spitting. But ladies, that's not so cool, is it? No, it's not. When I married Paula, I remember... I think it was when we were just dating, maybe even engaged. I remember spitting something out of my mouth. I was getting in the car, I was acting all cool, and I spit something out of my mouth. She goes, oh, no, uh uh-uh, no. Let's get something straight right here. We will not be spitting anything out of our mouth. That is not classy. You're not in junior high. We're not spitting things, okay? And that was tough for me to let go. I'll be straight up. But this is graphic language for Jesus. The thing is, is I think most of us probably grew up interpreting this incorrectly, I think what you might have grown up with, and what I know I grew up, is understanding this to say, it is better for you to be hot and passionate for Jesus, or cold and totally distant from Jesus, because at least that's allegedly genuine. But if you're right in the middle, it'll have nothing to do with that. That's not actually true. That's not what he's saying. There's a great purpose to hot water. There's a great purpose to cold water. Both hot and cold have a great purpose, but there's no purpose for tepid water. Room temperature water. And it's not very tasty. I'll explain why he's saying this. Um, Hierapolis and Colossae were two cities that were really close to Laodicea, but they were very important to Laodicea. Laodicea had a water problem. Of all all their wealth and their finances, they couldn't figure out this water problem that they had. So they had to just kind of ship it in or pipe it in via aqueducts which are set up above the ground. So Hierapolis is about 10 kilometers away, just over six miles, and you've got this place that has a deep, deep spring of hot water, and it had a lot of minerals in it, and that's probably what helped them with their eye care. But by the time they boated that water over the aqueducts all the way over to Laodicea, it was kind of gross. Not really hot. It it didn't really soothe you. It was just kind of gross. Colossae had a cold, like a frigid water spring coming up and same thing by the time they got it all the way which I think was four miles to Laodicea it was kind of gross cooked by the sun now it's just kind of room temperature and think about it I mean isn't it true that we find more comfort in hot fluids and in cold fluids than we do lukewarm I mean I think the only time that I've come across a fluid that transcends this is coffee Coffee, it doesn't matter what temperature it is. I was drinking this this morning and thinking about that. I love coffee hot. I love coffee cold. I even love coffee warm. My favorite coffee is when it's been sitting in the car for a day or two, right? I know it's weird. But when I drink it and it's a couple days old, man, I love it. I mean, if you went through Starbucks, you know how they have like dark roast, medium roast, decaf. If they had one that said yesterday's, I'm all about that. Big gulp me. Give me one of those. (laughs) But besides that, it's kind of gross to drink something. It's kind of, it doesn't refresh you and it doesn't really comfort you. It's just kind of there. Jesus is saying, you guys know how when you drink the water in your city and you're kind of like, ugh, wish it was hotter, wish it was colder. That's the way I feel about the way you live and it's the way I feel about how you act. It's the way I feel about how you do community and do church. That's what he's saying right here. This was not a church of intentionality. It was apathetic. They weren't cold and refreshing to the city. They they couldn't redeem culture like a missionary church should, right? We're all called to be missionaries as Christians. And if you can't preserve a culture, if you can't redeem and pierce a culture, then you're not very refreshing to that culture. Of course, this church wasn't very hot and comforting as well. It wasn't very, you know, consoling. So many addicted people, so many dying people, so many wrecked people and empty people. And the church couldn't be very pastoral to them, couldn't serve them very well. They were neither hot weren't cold either. They were helpful to the city in any way. They just failed straight up. I think the same thing can happen to us as a church. And I think this typifies a lot of churches in America, M- maybe more than half the churches in America. How did a church like this get to this place? It's all of a sudden very interesting to me as a pastor. I think there's two leading ways that we see in the text. The text actually answers that question for us. One is they became very complacent. And another thing they did is they became very self-sufficient. Right? And we're going to look at these in turn. I, I'd like to look at being complacent because I think it's important for us today. To be a missionary, a refreshing church to the city, and to be a, a pastoral church to the city, it, it requires large investments, large deposits, of our of our resources, and I'm talking about time, talent, treasure, emotion, intentionality, large deposits. The problem with that is, is we're already using them. <laughs> we're already using those resources for ourselves. We're using it to comfort ourselves and to feed ourselves. And I think of all the resources that I struggle with whenever it comes to myself and with other people I bump into. As a pastor, it's not so much finance. It's not so much talent. It's time. Luke, I just don't have time. Whenever I find myself talking to people who have been coming in and out or other churches or this, just people, and they struggle with mission, they struggle with the missionary posture, I just don't get the calm group thing, I just don't get mission and rhythms, I don't get all that stuff. Luke, I just don't have time. I don't have time. That's what I most hear. And I understand if what you hear whenever I say mission is insert giant block of empty time and schedule, then it's expensive, isn't it? No, you don't have time for that. Who has time for that? It's very difficult to do that. Not just time, but emotion. Emotion, which for me is more difficult. I was talking to a couple people this week about this analogy that I always use. It helps me talk to the elders around us and it helps me um, talk to my wife. I imagine everybody has a fuel tank inside of them. I know it sounds weird. But we do things to fill our tank, get us excited, things we're, we're passionate about, it just naturally just kind of invigorates us. It, typically, it might be something you're very gifted in, by the way. That's a totally different preach, but whatever fills your tank, it gets you excited. But then there are things that don't they drain your tank? Don't they kind of leak your tank? Inherently, we know what that is, and we try to protect our tank from leaking very much. We protect it from that whatever emotionally spills out of that tank. We need that for ourselves, so we protect it. I know for me, it's, it's emotional capital. Time and emotional capital. And maybe if you struggle with mission, you are like me in that. One of the things that drain my, because like this doesn't drain my tank. This is mankind's number one fear is public communication. It just doesn't freak me out at all. I could do this all day and I could be very excited at the end of the day. It just doesn't bother me. But if you put me in a living room one-on-one with a total wreck, friend, that just drains me it drains me. I love the person. I'm going to do the best I can. But when I come out of that, I need God to fill my tank. I need the Holy Spirit to do a work or I'll be worthless after that. So this is how it works in real time. If you are like that, you might find yourself at work and it's lunchtime. You get your hour or your 20 minutes or whatever it looks like for you. And all you want to do is go in the break room and eat your Slim Jim sandwich. And you want to stare at the corner and drink a Mountain Dew and be all about yourself. You just want to check out you want to read on your phone the apps of how the Vols did. You just want to do your own thing. You just want to fill your tank, right? But then comes Derek. Derek comes walking in, right? And Derek's a bleeder, right? Derek's always got an issue. He's got a problem with God. Doesn't like people who live a gay lifestyle. Doesn't like Jesus. Doesn't like anybody. Makes jokes about his wife. You know, just that guy, the guy that walks in and you're like, oh my goodness, anybody but this guy, Derek. No, Derek. No, Derek. And you know God is calling you to invest capital in Derek, But what are you doing? You protect your tank. You do the same thing I do. What I want to do right now is protect myself. Now, why do we do this? I think we do it because we don't trust that God will give us the comfort and the rest that we really need. I think we hear his call for us to be missional to people, but we think it's an oppressive thing that he's asking. We think it's in, in just an over-the-top thing that he would ask for us. And what do we do when we feel oppressed? We try to escape that oppression. And so we try to define the moment ourselves. I know, I know that God is calling me to do this, but I think I know better. Maybe not all the time, but right now, I think I know better. I think I could choose better. I know it's best for me. I'm going to do this instead. And, and, and it just takes a moment to make a decision like that. It's very rare that we could zoom out and see the whole world within the view that we need to. It's hard for us to really zoom out from our day-to-day normal routine and say, okay, I'm an alien here. I'm just here visiting. I'm a foreigner on this planet. Pretty soon, God is going to come and rescue this whole thing out. Like the Bible says, I'm but a vapor. I have very little time. We rarely do that. We think right now, in this moment in time, I know what I need and God does not and I choose what I want. Problem is, is if you put a bunch of those moments together, you have what we call a lifestyle. And before you know it, you've become apathetic. Very, very complacent. It's very difficult for us. So what do we do? We just continue. We hear good messages. We promise that we will get better. But we always guard our tank. We always guard our schedule. Thinking that in our minds, we don't have time to be intentional. Intentional. We only have time to be apathetic because look at our schedule, it's crazy. There's a couple things I'd like to say before we move off at of this point. There's a couple mistakes I think we make. One of them is, is I think we make the mistake in thinking that God is impressed with our busyness and so he gives us a pass, right? Like God is looking at your day planner and saying, oh wow, well, goodness gracious, why didn't you show me this earlier? Of course you're too busy. My bad, bro. Just, just do what you want. I mean, surely your schedule will clean up over time, won't it? I mean, it'll get easier over time, won't it? I mean, that's what you keep telling yourself, and we, we, we believe that, right? Listen, he's not impressed. He's not impressed with my busy schedule. He's not impressed with your busy schedule. Friends, you might have to forego things that the culture would never forego. You might have to punt on things that those around you will think you're crazy. You might have to give up things and say no to things that the city and the culture will think you are out of your mind. Fred, you might not need to take that promotion. I know it's more money. You might not need to do that. Student, you might not need to take 18 hours. Yeah, but Luke, it gets me out of school like a semester early. You don't get it. You might not need to take 18 hours. You might not need to even take 15, depending on who you are. Or even 12, depending on. And listen, I know this is a very un-American thing I'm saying right now. I'm just not so sure it's unbiblical. He's not impressed with our busyness. God is not drawing the bored people of the church into mission. He's not saying, if you're bored and you have nothing to do, I would invite you to mission. I mean, obviously you have time for it. He's calling all of us into mission. All of us. I have to ask myself all the time, with my busy schedule, what is getting in the way of me not obeying God and extending the gospel into the city around me? That's what we mean when we say mission. I'm not saying walking around with chick tracks, handing them out to poor people. That doesn't, that doesn't have to be mission. It could be the dude right next to you at work. It could be your neighbor. It's just extending the gospel of what God has done to recover you into his life in a way that he can understand it in a relational way that images Jesus and pronounces Jesus at the same time. Being on mission. I think a second mistake we make is thinking that complacency and apathy is the result of a packed schedule. It's not. It's not. Apathy and complacency is just not being intentional. If you're not intentional with a busy schedule, friend, you will never be intentional with a packed out schedule. It's just not how it works. I think you know that. I don't think this is even a point I even have to teach. Mission and activity is just not something you do when your calendar gets clear. Some of the most intentional and active people, pastorally and missionally, I know, have very, very busy schedules. They just leverage every moment that they have. If you feel complacent with the dying city around you and apathetic with the dying sitting around you, it's not your schedule's fault. It's not your professor's fault, your boss's fault. It's not homeschool's fault either, it's your heart. It's your unbelief that God will take your boring, normal, predictable life and leverage it for his glory to see something very beautiful done. That's what it is. Ask yourself, just as a litmus test, do you ask God daily to give you opportunity in your already hectic and busy lifestyle? It's a dangerous prayer because what you'll find is opportunities springing up. And then what do you do when they come? What do you do? What excuses do you make? Are you guarding your tank? Laodicea had gotten to a place where they were so involved with their own lives that they couldn't even see the city. They couldn't even see it. They were totally blind. We're going to find out here in a minute. And I think we could be the same church. Neck deep in our own business, avoiding anything that will cost us. And I'm the worst. I'll just tell you. I am the worst of sinners when it comes to this. I know how to camouflage my laziness and my selfishness with an overly busy lifestyle of important things. It's easy to do. It's easy to justify. Let's look at verse 17. I have to cruise on here. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. In white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. This church did not struggle with just complacency; struggled with self-sufficiency too. they were a church that didn't need anybody. They're on their own islands. Very overconfident. Very prideful, and they can't even see this. That's the thing about pride, isn't it? They can't even see this, so Jesus is having to spell it out for them. And Jesus is so good. That even when he's rebuking these people, he's doing it in ways that they could understand, right? He's saying this, hey, you guys have gold coming in and out the door all the time. Gold everywhere. You're so wealthy, but you're totally bankrupt. Come buy from me. Quit relying on yourself. Come buy from me. Depend on me. I am to be your resource. You guys all look like you're well-dressed, he says, wearing the latest fashions. Congratulations on the black wool. It's gorgeous. But you're naked there's shame on you come get white garments from me he says I care you guys have it it's great problem is you're all blind he says come and get from me come get an eye salve from me that you may see he's so good Jesus is so good even even in his rebukes he's so helpful to us and serving us There's a parable, not a parallel, there's a parable that links up very well with this. And I'm going to read it to you just as a form of an illustration. I don't think I'm going to need to teach it or anything. But it's in Luke 18. Is this going to be on the stage? Okay. Luke 18 in verse 9 is where I'm going to start. Don't worry about turning there because I'm going to cruise. It says, he also told his parable, this parable, to some who trusted in themselves. So there's Laodicean people there. Now this wasn't in Laodicea, but they're there. You know they are. It's the same kind of person that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy, even like this clown over here, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see a distinction made here, right? Not just between a Pharisee and a tax collector, that's not looking deep enough. You see a distinction between a moral person and a needy person. You see a distinction between a morally upright, well-behaved person, and a desperate, out-of-control, needy person. That's what you see. And he lets us know who goes home justified out of that. Right? As I look at this passage, Knoxville is looking more and more Laodicean to me all of a sudden. Am I crazy? We are a city very full of moral people. Morally upright, well-behaved people. Very few desperate very few needy, very few who need the help and know they need the help and know where their resource is. You're fired, Sean. I can't believe you did that. Someone write that down. <laughs> it's all right. Champ, we're all waiting. There's no rush. I think when I look at this, I understand that Christianity in general, if the more you understand Christianity... The more you understand that Christianity does not house moral people who are well-behaved, but it's an abode and a structure that houses needy, hurting, dependent people. Laodicea, they felt no need. They were above it. They had no need. They tried to build a kingdom without a king. I mean, this is amplified later as Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He's not even in the house. (laughs) He's outside the door. They left him in the dust. Busy about his business, and he's out, I'm outside knocking. They were way behind here. And I think when we read this parable, what we do is, and I guarantee I'd say 95% of you did this. If I were to ask you what character resonates more with you, you would probably say something that sounds or rhymes with, well, I would like to be more of the tax collector, but I know I'm probably a little bit more like the Pharisee. I'm probably somewhere in between, knowing I want to be other and hoping I'm not too much of the Pharisee i think that's what we would say how do you know how do you know where you're at i think there's a couple tests that we could put up against our life this is a test that i use one of them is how how do you pray not how often you pray i don't care if you pray an hour a day but but that might be part of it but what do your prayers sound like whenever you do pray prayer is interesting because it it shows an an indication of where you place your sense of need and your place of trust It tells everything. It's like looking under the hood of what you really believe by seeing the rhythms of your prayer. And it's amazing what we say and not praying. It's amazing what we say when we don't say. I can always tell I'm not doing well spiritually. I can always tell I'm not doing well um, as far as feeling self-sufficient whenever I find myself not praying very much because this is what it looks like. Jesus, I would pray for you to help me with my marriage today, but I'm pretty sure I got that covered. Pretty sure I got this under control. Thanks, though. Jesus, I would pray for this tough appointment I'm about to walk into with this hurting brother. I would ask you for wisdom if I didn't think I already had it. So just stand back and watch. Now, we would never say that. Lightning would come out of the sky, right? We'd all duck for cover. But we say that by not saying anything. Whenever we have a lack of prayer, it shows that we don't find ourselves very needy. But needy people pray, don't they? Man, needy people pray. Something I bump into a lot as a pastor, when you find people in the midst of crisis, like they've been divorced, headed for a divorce, just had a death, someone might die. I don't think I've ever prayed as much in my life, except for maybe that three months right before my dad died. I mean, we just, we just did a funeral yesterday, a 23-year-old, and I was in the hospital talking to people, seeing the looks on their face, they were praying their guts out. You know what people in the midst of crisis say? It's odd. They all say the same thing. Well, at least I can say I've never prayed as much in my life. I mean, at least my devotional time has gone through the roof. Why are they saying this? Because they finally found themselves in a place where they can't do anything. They can't cure their dad's cancer. They can't help this person in a hospital bed. They can't fix their marriage. They can't find their own job and manufacture a job. So what do they do? They hit their knees and they pour their guts out. Why? Because they're desperate. Because they're needy. Because they need God to move. What does it look like for you? How do you see yourself? How does prayer in your life frame that up for you, right? If you don't see yourself as dependent and needy, friends, you probably don't totally understand the gospel. The gospel is a radical story of God coming to people who could not help themselves, who could not fix themselves or remedy their own condition. The beautiful part of the gospel is that where we are all needy and at our grossest, our most scandalous and sleazy, even when we didn't know how much we needed him, he came. Even when we didn't know how desperate we were, he answered. It's the whole story of the gospel. It's only for the desperate and the needy. It's not for the self-sufficient. i got to move on again. Verse 19. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I, repute, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's a famous passage. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. Okay, what is he saying right here? Very importantly, there's a lot of things going on. I'm going to find one, okay? I think what he's saying is I want you to repent, but repent with zeal. Repent with zeal. That word means everything you think it does. It means with fervor, with great activity, with eagerness. I think many times when we repent, it's not so much with zeal. I think many times when we repent as a church, we're saying sorry for something that we've done. Maybe an action that we've done that has grieved us. Maybe we see that it's hurt somebody else, and we're genuinely sorry for what we've done. So we say that we're sorry for it. But we're not really turning from the idols that cause the behavior. We're not really smashing those things that are motoring and fueling behavior. Let me give you an example. I'm yelling at my wife, right? So I say I'm sorry to my wife because I genuinely am sorry. I see she's upset. The kids heard it. You know how it is. I feel bad. I feel like it's just a troll. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did. I'm sorry I yelled at you. That's not bad. It's not bad to apologize. That that requires an apology. But it, it falls short if I don't also turn my back on the idol of being glorious. I must be right. Isn't that what fuels arguments and yelling? I must be right. You must respect my position. I am right and you are wrong. And because we're not agreeing that I am right, I'm going to come right back at you. And we're going to fight it out. If you're satisfied and you you find great sufficient, I guess, peace in the fact that God is glorious, then it's okay for you not to be. You could be wrong. It's actually quite comfortable. To not be right all the time, because you know God is, and God's good, and he's glorious. It's okay to apologize for yelling at your spouse, but also repent from seeking glory. Another example may be gossiping. Gossip's an easy one, right? is it awkward when you get found out for gossiping? Some of you have been found out. Man, that's so embarrassing, isn't it? And we're sorry. We're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know. We're so sorry to the person that we gossiped about. It did damage there. We're sorry uh, to the person that we gossiped to. We feel dirty inside. So we we apologize. And you should. You should apologize for that. But you should also repent for this desire to serve this idol of image that you have. Whenever you gossip, that's nothing more than an image fracture in your life. You're not satisfied with the, with the fact that God has adorned and clothed you with the image of Christ, so you have to bash and smash people around you to naturally elevate yourself. I'm insecure about the way I feel, so I'm going to damage and mar your reputation so it makes me look good relevant to you. That's what gossip does. And so what, what it looks like if we just apologize for gossip and we never turn our back on this desire and this insatiable hunger for image— it's not zealous repentance. It's not zealous repentance. A zealous repentance requires smashing idols, not just turning from surface sins, but the hairy ones that kind of hide behind it. And we usually don't do this. We usually don't go far enough, do we? Our repentance is very rarely zealous. And over time, zealous repentance, it produces a radical change that people around you can see, especially those close to you. If you're busy telling your spouse and your friends that you're repenting and you're trying to change and you're sorry and you're saying it over and over and over and over again, but there is no noticeable change over time, friends, you might not be repenting. You might just be really sorry you're doing the same thing over and over again. And there is a big difference. There is a big difference. You need to be about the business of destroying idols in your life and repenting to God for those, not just stuff you've done to each other. That's stopping too short. It produces a change over time. Don't we see this in Zacchaeus' life, this crooked tax collector, right, hurting people? Jesus comes in his living room, and and, I mean, the gospel comes in power on Zacchaeus, and he says, look, I'll give half of my stuff to the poor, and if I've wronged anyone, I'll pay them four times what I wronged them. So he just basically gave away probably no less than 80% of his fortune. What does Jesus say? Salvation has found this house. Because a zealous gospel is always present with a zealous repentance. And a zealous gospel actually produces a zealous repentance because we have nothing to lose. have nothing to lose. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 7. It won't be up on the screen. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then here it is. Here's the proof right here. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Paul is describing a zealous repentance that occurred in a church. We have it played out right before us in 2 Corinthians. And then he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. He gives us an action, like a thing, like an activity. He's not going to come and hang out with you, He's not going to come and just talk with you, jam out with you. He's going to eat with you. Is that random? Does that sound kind of random? That's his invitation. Eating is symbolic, in the ancient Mediterranean is symbolic of enemies becoming friends. We went through this at great length, maybe a year ago, um, when we went through our series on hospitality. Um, Hospitality, we learned, uh, is grace extended to outsiders. That's the basic definition of it. But we looked at food and what it meant within hospitality. It sounds like a weird series. If you weren't here, just know we did it during Thanksgiving. It doesn't sound so weird, right? But we looked at food and what it means to really sit down and eat with one another, and you find that a lot in biblical literature, because hospitality had behind it the idea of people who were once throwing stones and curses at each other, sitting down and becoming equals, becoming friends, and yes, even becoming family. That's beautiful. this is why we take communion. This is why it's important to us. We didn't rip it out of the Acts 29 handbook. It actually is important to us. We do it as often as we can. We try to make it as good as we can and and improve it as much as we can. Why? Because it reminds us. The reason we do it every week, friends, and the reason we finish with it every week is is because it won't allow me to stray from the gospel. If that is where we end, I have to stay anchored in grace and anchored in Jesus or else it just doesn't make sense. But it reminds us that we were at once at war with God. We were enemies at one time. And because of a perfect meal, because of a perfect broken body and a perfectly spilt wine on that cross, because of the imagery of what is there, we have church, we have gospel, we have grace. And it doesn't just nuance what God has already done for mankind, but where we're going. There will be a banqueting table where there will be a new communion. Jesus says, the next time I take communion with you, he tells his disciples, it will be the way from here. It'll be the last communion. There'll be a banquet where there'll be bread and wine and we'll see him. And friends, we're going to be seated at a table that we shouldn't be seated at. Invited guests of honor. So it's a visual gospel we tell people. Pointing backwards and pointing forwards to see how sweet God is to us. It's important to us. Today as we take communion... And the team can go ahead and start coming up. Are they already done that? No. Sorry, dude. <laughs> I think as we look at communion today, because we don't look like Laodicea as a city, but we all look like Laodiceans, right? We all look like it. Look at your level of self-sufficiency. How self-sufficient are you? Really? Really? Are you better than people? Do you ever need anyone's help? Do you pray? Do you not even need God's help? How self-sufficient, how complacent are you? How apathetic are you? Really look at your life. Because we might not live in a boom town, but we understand what's going on here. and Everyone is struggling with this. My one question for you is this. What does your repentance look like and how zealous is it? Do you have a hard time seeing the gospel crack underneath it all? The sin behind the sin behind the sin. Is that hard for you to see? Do you need to seek somebody out to help you kind of do a diagnosis on it? Community is very helpful for that, right? Are you smashing idols or are you just cutting deals with them? So as we take communion, we like to say from the stage, we would like you to do this in community if you can. If you're here with a roommate, you're here with family, Community is better done in plurality, right? It is. But listen, if you're here and you don't love Jesus, we would actually implore that you take Christ instead. Take Jesus, take the gospel and appropriate it to your life instead of just taking communion because what that represents might be something that you don't even believe in yet, right? And so as we look at these Laodiceans, the blood might run a little deeper for you. You might be so self-sufficient, you're building your own kingdom, you, you might be so complacent that you don't even care about anyone around you. Well, listen, today, if God is stirring something up in you, if God is pushing on you, if your heart is racing, if, if you notice that you need to change and walk away from where you've been and towards something else, you need to talk to somebody today. He says, I'm knocking at the door. I'm knocking at the door. I'm knocking at the door. And I think for some of you, that's very true today. And if you open it, he will come in and he will dine with what was an enemy and is now family. It's a very beautiful part of the, of the story of the gospel for us. Amen? Go ahead and stand with me. Um, and like I said, we, as this service goes on and the songs are playing, feel free to go back and take communion at your own pace and your own clip. Take it with whoever you want. You have plenty of time to do it. We, we love this part of the worship setting and we want to guard it as much as possible for you to have an intimate moment with the Lord and maybe to wrestle back with some of the things that you've heard, okay? But you'll also find people that are kind of spread and here and there that can help you. I know Garrett's back there. And Garrett, can, Garrett will you raise your hand so everyone can see you? Garrett can help you with some of your questions, okay? Hey, Tyler, will you raise your hand? Everyone look at Tyler. Devlin, thank you. We do have like 17 Tylers here. But Tyler right there, he can help you as well, all right? So if you need anything... You want to talk to somebody, go back and talk to these men. All right? They'll help work through some of the questions you might have.